I'm going to read an excerpt this morning from When God Weeps by uh, Joni Erickson Tata. From heaven, the Father now rouses himself like a lion, disturbed, shakes his mane, and roars against the shivering remnant of man hanging on a cross. Never has the Son seen the Father look at him so. Never felt the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkness the visible sky. The Son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked and the children that you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, and so belittled my name? Have you ever held a razor tongue, your razor tongue, and what a self-righteous, pitiful drunk, you who molest little boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents? Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying pornography, accepting bribes, you have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the Son, Jesus, is innocent, isn't he? He is blamelessness itself. The Father knows it, but the divine pair had an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if he personally was responsible for every sin that was ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Yahweh's stored rage against humankind for every century explodes into the single direction. Father! Father! Why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ear. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not 
reach down in reply. The Trinity had planned it. The Son endured it. And the Spirit enabled it. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. The cross of Christ, the gospel can be summed up into two words, became and become. Jesus became sin for us that we would become righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.4, loose paraphrase there, but that's what it says. The cross is about forgiveness, both getting it and giving it. So if you were to look at Ram Bart's painting of the three crosses, this is my favorite picture of all time. You would see, first of all, your attention would go where? Right to the center, where we see Jesus crucified there upon the cross. Next, you would begin to note that there's a lot of contrast that's happening in this picture. There is light and there is darkness. And we see that depicted with the two thieves. Finally, your eyes would then drift to the edge of the painting where you catch a sight of another figure there almost hidden off in the shadows. Art itself, okay? The, the art critics say that this was probably Rembrandt, that he put himself into this picture and that he recognized that by his sins, he helped nail Jesus to the cross. We see here in Matthew 27, as we look at verse 45 together, it says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all of the land darkness from 9 a.m till noon is that possible darkness there as he hung in the light from noon to three there was a miraculous darkness that covered the land and it was as though all creation was sympathizing there with its creator. Three hours of silence, as well as three hours of darkness, and no record of what happened. Yet here lies probably the three most important hours in all of human history. So tremendous that it was, cannot be described. It cannot be Hold, and no wonder the sun buried its face and hid its glory. Remember it was Passover? Do you remember that? Passover. We need to crucify these criminals. Get them dead so we can celebrate Passover. Passover required that they remembered what? They needed to remember back to the Passover, the first Passover. And Passover, as we know, had ten plagues. Do you guys remember the ninth plague there in Exodus 10, verses 21 to 29? 
darkness. And the darkness was actually felt. And then we had the 10th plague. Do you remember that in Exodus 12, verses 29 and 30? Death of the firstborn. The shed lamb's blood meant the saving of life for some and the surety of death of others. Today, as we consider the cross, as we consider the gospel of Matthew and the gospels altogether, we're able to see that there were seven statements that Jesus made as he hung upon the cross. Three before noon and four at 3 p.m. And there were zero from noon till three. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Then at 3 p.m., my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. And lastly, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now take a look at verse 46 here with me. We're going to see four statements. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Now I want to consider with you guys this morning the reality of the Son of God being forsaken. Let's turn to Psalm 22, which decodes this mystery. You see, no man could answer this question. How could God be forsaken? No angel could answer this question. But this mystery, foretold hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand, in Psalm 22, gives us insight. You guys know the psalm was written before they even invented crucifixion, 500 years beforehand. What happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago upon that hill, on that tree, was not by accident, guys. God knew what he was doing all along before the foundations of the world were told Christ was crucified. And it tells us here in verse 1 as we consider this mystery, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Did we just read that, guys? Whoa! Do you think as Jesus cried that from the cross that day, 
The Jewish onlookers remembered the psalms in which they learned as children that they had put to song that, hey, I know what this is. I know what he's saying. I know what psalm he's referring to. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me in your words of my, and, and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear. And in the night season, and I am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Now, if you guys consider verse 2 with me there, this is a period of light and dark. Why? Look at verse 3. The reason there is the holiness of God. That is the reason. Jesus was saying, Father, I understand because you are holy. And I am full of sin, not mine, but of all others, that you must give this strike of divine wrath. And you guys, later today, read the rest of Psalm 22. It will blow your mind away. But here, guys, the reality is God turns now his back on the sin bearer, forsaken, Here's the colossal difference between martyrs and their Lord. In their dying agony, they were divinely sustained. Have you guys ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, Saints? If you haven't read it, pick it up today. Brothers and sisters who were persecuted and put to death for their faith in Christ throughout the centuries. And it is beautiful how God by his spirit was there with them as they were dying. Praising the Lord, shining as angels. But there's a difference, guys. When Jesus died, he was forsaken by God. God was not there with him. He was forsaken. Do you guys see the difference there? Huge. So forsaken. Jesus was partially forsaken when he came to earth. Gradually as he drew near to the cross, and then totally, not only from man, but now from his father. Forsaken can mean abandoned, deserted, left behind, left alone. So please don't ever say, God can't, under he just doesn't understand what I'm going through. He can't sympathize and our God humbled himself and became like us, guys. He understands more than any man what it's like to be human. I want to consider this sponge in verse 47 to 49. It's very interesting to consider a sponge. You guys know that it's the lowest form of animal life. Brought in contact with Christ, who is the top of all life. Best and softest sponges, you guys know where they come from? The Mediterranean. So the sponge brought refreshment to the lips of the dying Lord so that the least of the saints bring refreshment to please him today. This is no ordinary sponge. 
This is a sponge with a high calling of bringing refreshment onto its maker. Yet the sponge might not have always felt this way. Let's consider the finish line here in verse 50. Did you guys see that? It says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. Like the shout of a conquering warrior here, guys. Yet, odd coming from a condemned man dying on a cross, isn't it? Think about this for a second. We need perspective. Let's see the big picture. Okay? But what a shout it was. It is finished! Thousands have preached on this. But who can tell the meaning of, the, of what's compacted or what lies within all of that statement? It was finished. It was over. It had, he had won. He is victor. There is no cry of dis, despair here. There is no, you know, it's just completion. It's a cry of fulfillment. Do you guys understand what Jesus was saying when he said it was finished? It was a cry of victory. Jesus is the finisher, not the quitter. So what was finished, pastor? I'm so glad you guys asked me that this morning. Let me tell you just a few things. You guys know all prophecies regarding his first advent were fulfilled. 310 specific prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the coming of Christ, his first coming, fulfilled to a T. Every single one of them. Impossible. Unless God really is God and he can foretell the future. Do you guys know that he claims to be the only true God? And he says, I will prove it. Because I alone can tell you the things that are not yet. Check out Isaiah 45 and 46. He challenges all other gods. If you're God, you tell the future. Do you guys know that the Bible that you hold in your hands is the only book upon the whole planet that has fulfilled prophecy in it? Not just a few vague things. Thousands of prophecies. A third of the Bible, guys, is prophecy. And so much of it comes right around Jesus Christ and what he was going to do. 26 major books of faith out there in the world that people say, hey, this is divinely inspired. I believe this. This is my faith. Not one of them has a fulfilled prophecy in them. Not one. And they're the book you have in your hands. Thousands of them. In Christ, it is finished. He fulfilled those prophecies, guys. And let me tell you what. There's eight times the amount of those prophecies concerning his second coming in the scriptures. The Bible speaks about today more than any other time in history, even more than when Jesus was alive. Here, what we're reading about through the Gospel of Matthew, even all those prophecies that have been fulfilled, there is so much being spoken of today. Guys, look up. Your redemption draws nigh. He is coming soon. I'm excited. So we see prophecies regarding his first advent, fulfilled, finished. The completion of his suffering, finished. Is he suffering today, guys? No. He's going to return one day, and there's going to be a big bloody bath war. But even in that, does he suffer? He speaks the word. A word in the war is one. Okay? There's no more suffering for our Lord and Savior. He is glorified. 
It is finished. No more suffering. And don't you guys look forward to that too? Man, some people trip out about dying. I can't wait. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more suffering. Doesn't that sound pretty good? I can't wait, guys. You guys know what? We get to go home to be with him. And when he comes back, we get to come back with him. You know, all geared up, riding on horses too, ready for battle. And you guys know that even in that, we don't get to do anything but watch him speak a word. Like, it's going to be so cool. Anyways, another thing that we see is the goal of the incarnation was reached. We also see his work on earth. It was finished. Atonement was complete. The end of our sins. The fulfillment of laws. The law's requirement. Finished. The destruction of Satan's power. Sentence was passed, though it's not executed yet. And that's why we need a good theology, guys, when it comes to the kingdom of God. Do you guys know that the kingdom is here, but not yet at the same time? Think about that for a second. For where the king is, that's where the kingdom is. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Is Christ in you? Is that the hope of glory? Is that what we read about in the scriptures? Have you been born again of the Spirit of God? Does he live within you? That's what the Bible says. I know it's true. I know he's with me. I've been born again. But I know Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father right now too. So what's going on with this kingdom? How is the kingdom here in part, but not yet? We struggle through things. Why have I been sick with a cold? Why do people get cancer? Why do we go through these things? Why do some get healed and others don't get healed? Why is the kingdom there in part but not fully? Guys, we need to understand and have a good biblical understanding that, hey, the kingdom is here in part and it's going to be completely when Christ returns. And Satan, that little turd <laughs> that messes with us, he hates you guys, you know that? That's why I call him names. He's, he's a punk, okay? He just wants to kill you. That's what he wants to do. Some of you are new in Christ. Be careful. Your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's what he wants to do. He wants to utterly destroy you, rip you off, steal from you. Don't let him do that, guys. Because the truth is, the victory has been won. And we stand in Christ's victory. What does the Bible say? Stand fast, and Satan will flee. He will flee. If he's messing with you guys, you take a stand. You are a child of the living God. Don't let him lie to you. Don't let him rip you off. Stand in the truth, guys. So we could go on about that, but do you guys understand how important, how radical this statement was when Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished? Do you believe that? I absolutely do. He proved it. Look at verse 50 here. This one little word yielded. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That was the seventh statement from the cross. His last words. Yielded. You guys can jot down John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. That's where Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself and I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. Guys understand he was in control. Okay. And he was voluntarily yielding up his spirit. The timing was impeccable. He was our Passover lamb. It was Passover and it was 3 p.m. What does that matter? I'm glad you guys asked. Jordan Ross, is he putting out fires this morning? Yes, we love our firemen. He loves talking scripture. If you guys ever want to have fun talking the word, grab Jordan. Um, he gave me this book. I've been reading through this as we've been going through the gospel of uh, Matthew together. It's Understanding Jesus, Cultural Insights into the Words and the Deeds of Christ by Joe Amaral. I just want to read to you guys just the point on three o'clock, the importance of that. And I found this fascinating. He writes this, Matthew, the Jewish disciple, in writing to the Jewish audience, is compelled to relay this beautiful parallel. In the days of the temple, the evening sacrifices took place at 3 p.m. Passover was no exception. At 3 p.m. on the day of Passover, the lamb that the priest had chosen from Bethlehem, the lamb for the nation, was sacrificed and presented to the people. The formal end of the Passover occurred when one of the priests would ascend the steps that would lead to the top of the walls of the Temple Mount, and he would stand at the top of the southeast corner at 3 p.m., and he would blow the shofar in a specific series of blasts. Why was the shofar used to announce the end of the feast? The answer is found back on Mount Sinai when God called Moses up on the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments. And the story is told in Exodus 19, verses 16 to 19. On the morning, on the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Most English versions use the word trumpet in the account of giving of the commandments. The trumpet used in the text is not the typical trumpet that we would think of in modern terms. The Hebrew word for trumpet is shofar, which is a ram's horn. In this passage in Exodus, then, we see the voice of God came in the form of a shofar blast uh, or to the people out of this passage, across the belief that the shofar was synonymous with the voice of God. Keeping this in mind, let's go back to the priest at Passover in his sounding of the shofar at 3 p.m. to bring Passover to a close. To those who heard the sound, it re represented the voice of God declaring his Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Not far from the Temple Mount, the crucified Jesus would have also heard the shofar blast. 
What did this blast mean to him? Think about it. The sound of the shofar meant that the sacrifice had been completed. Life had been secured. It is very possible that Jesus Jesus interpreted this blast as the voice of his father declaring that the or that Jesus's work of giving his life so that we might have life was finished. God had made his election of his lamb. The lamb was sacrificed and now God was presenting him for all to see. And this seems to explain why the gospel records that it is precisely 3 p.m. that Jesus cried out, it is finished and passed into his father's presence. Jesus had met all the requirements of the Passover lamb once and for all. No more lambs needed to be sacrificed from the moment on, that moment on. And the apostle Paul attests this when he writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I love it, guys. Think about it, guys. Exodus 12, 6 tells us this. You shall keep it, the lamb, until the 14th day on the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So literally between evenings, in other words, between sunset and dark, to the Jews that was between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. It was a death by appointment. It was not an accident. And this is how we die also. Not according to the will of cancer or from an erratic drunk driver. No, we die under God's providential care. We do not pray, Father, into the hands of accidents or an apparent randomness of ill health. I commit my spirit. We will pass through the curtain according to God's clock, not the timetable of some random fate. That's why I love Psalm 31, verse 14 and 15. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Isn't that good? Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15. Let's look at three supernatural events that took place this day. Look at verse 51 here in Matthew 27. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Underline that in your Bibles, top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. You guys see what's happening as Jesus was crucified? He just gave up his spirit. He just died upon the cross. This veil is torn in the temple. The earth is quaking. Rocks are splitting. Verse 52, two graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. When the Bible in the New Testament talks about saints who have fallen asleep, that means they died. But if you're in Christ, you don't ever really die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They're just asleep. Okay, they're not really dead. 
And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I want to consider this veil that was torn in verse 51. It was ripped from top to bottom. In other words, guys, something God did, not man. Okay? God took that. He tore it from the top to the bottom. And it speaks of completeness of Jesus' sacrifice. Not a torn halfway meeting you halfway. Okay? The drawbridge is let down. The vault is open. 100% unrestricted access to God. This veil is what separated the people from the holy of holies. The presence of God himself. No more need for the temple. One greater than the temple was here. No more need for the priesthood. He is our great high priest, Hebrews 10.21. And no more need for some sacrificial system. He offered once, one time Catholics, sacrifice for sins forever. We can't re-crucify him once and done the Bible speaks of that over and over again. Hebrews 10, 12 states that. The veil torn, Christ's body torn, the earth itself torn, graves torn open. Even the centurion's heart was torn. And then the second part of verse 51, we see the terrain shake and break going on. The earth is quaking here. What does that remind us of? Mount Sinai, right? Receiving of the Ten Commandments. God gave the law to Moses there. Now it quakes again. When? When the law is fulfilled. We couldn't keep the law, guys. All that time, man in their best efforts trying to do it. And not one not one person in all that time was able to fulfill the law, to keep the law. We have all broken it, guys. But Christ did. And the earth quakes when it's fulfilled. So it's interesting, the incarnation didn't rend that veil. Jesus' sinless life didn't rend that veil. Nor the anguish in Gethsemane not even the agony of the cross. He must actually die to redeem sinners. Do you guys get that? He had to die. And then we're told the tombs are open in verse 52 and 53. Think about that. The torn veil says he's conquered sin. The earthquake suggests that he's conquered the law, that he's fulfilled it. And then these resurrected saints, what does that say? What does that prove? He's defeated death. They're not dead any longer. They're alive. So what should we do with this how should we react well let's take a look at four human reactions to all of this in verse 54 so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding jesus saw the earthquake 
and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, and he himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded that the body be given to him. And then Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in a new tomb, which had not hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So the cross here, guys, is a mighty magnet. That's what I see. Okay? What is it doing? Attracting and repelling. That's what the cross does. Okay? Look at the soldiers in verse 54 and how they responded. Truly, this was the Son of God. These are the Roman soldiers who just had him crucified upon the cross. Before his salvation, C.S. Lewis thought we can't know God any more than Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet could have known Shakespeare. We can't know God any more than any character in any play knows the author. Then it occurred to him, Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet could know their creator if Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. And then he realized this is the phenomena of the Bible. God wrote himself into the play so man could know who God is. You want to know what God's like? Read the Gospels. He is Jesus Christ, guys. That's God. You want to know what he's like? You want to get to know his heart? You want to know what he says? Read his word, guys. So the centurion here just witnessed the greatest scene, the greatest act in all of history. He witnessed God writing himself into the play. And he had front row seats. Wow. And then verse 57, once he had finished his work of redemption, I want us to note that Jesus Christ was not again touched by enemy hands. Doesn't happen. And while Christ was being made sin for us, God permitted people to do their worst. But 
When the work was finished, God permitted only Christ's friends handle him. And then we read of these women in verses 55, 56, and 61. Last to leave their Lord's resting place. First to return when the Sabbath had passed. Then we read of this Joseph of Arimathea in verses 57 to 60. You guys know that Joseph, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus's? But secretly for the fear of the Jews, yet when his Lord actually died, extraordinary courage nerved this man to go to Pilate himself and ask for the body of Jesus. And this is the hour of late blooming love that draws him out of the shadows okay, to fearlessly befriend his Savior here. So we're told in the gospel that we have Joe and Nick, Nicodemus, Okay, they're like these stars that appear amidst this black sky. Not any of the apostles, but these two men attend and they officiate the burial service here. So picture this wealthy man propping up a ladder against the cross beam, struggling to pull out those nails that were deeply embedded into Christ one by one. And how do you lower him to the ground without getting blood all over yourself? Removing the thorns that punctured his swollen head. His face was swollen from the Roman fists. His bones were out of socket. So Nick and Joe must have understood Isaiah 52, 14 better than anyone ever could. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man in his form marred beyond human likeness. Yeah, Old Testament foretold of the crucifixion. Read Isaiah 52, 53. You meet a Jewish person someday. Ask them, hey, I've been reading your scriptures. What is Isaiah 53 all about? Can you tell me, please? So they defiled themselves. They touched a dead body. They were not able to eat Passover. But what difference did it make? For they found the Passover lamb himself, God. So there's a new tomb, new, so no one could say to another that someone else came forth. Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the, re- with the re- rich, at his death. And then we have these chief priests in verses 62 to the end. The disciples forgot that Jesus said that he would rise, but his enemies didn't. Think about that for a second. There are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ that know what he said, who he claimed to be. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Oh, man. Enemies know that Jesus has declared that. That's why we're okay with all religions of the world. We'll talk about anything. We'll teach our kids anything in schools. But when it comes to Jesus, uh uh-uh. He claimed to be the only one. The truth. The way. The life. We can't get to heaven except through him. They know what he's claimed, guys. 
It's interesting to me that at his trial, guys, his false witnesses gave a different meaning to his words, but they knew all the while that he was speaking of his bodily resurrection here and not the physical rising of the temple. They knew that he was speaking about rising from the dead. So make it secure as you know how. So Pilate either didn't want him coming out or was saying, just try to hold him in. So can you hold back spring when it's ready to bud forth? Nuh-uh. It's going to happen. So unintentionally, they did honor to the sleeping king and helped him prove his resurrection by sealing the tomb, making it impossible for anyone, friend or foe, to steal his body. So this is a great chapter for, chapter for us as believers. But what does it mean? What do I do with it? I see what Jesus did, all that he accomplished, his mission fulfilled. Guys, we need to apply the blood to the doorposts of our hearts. You guys get that? We have to apply the blood. That's the new covenant. That is what's prophesied. There's life in the blood. And he shed perfect blood that we could be forgiven. Oh yeah, in the Old Testament, they would apply the blood upon the doorposts. And the angel of death would pass over. They were saved. But you will not be saved unless you personally, I don't care if you've grown up in the chair, church, just because you go to church doesn't mean you're going to heaven, guys. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. You have to apply the blood personally to your own heart. That's your job. God's not going to make you do it. It's your choice. You're either going to reject him or you receive him. That's the gospel. We get to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. What people do with that, that's their choice. But let's choose to do our part and share the good news, not to be ashamed of it, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Amen?